Well, thank you, young people, for serving us so well this morning, leading us in worship. And it's been a full morning already, hasn't it? And uh, we still have the privilege of hearing God's word preached. And so I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John. And uh, we are right in the midst of the first 18 verses of this glorious gospel. And uh, this prologue we've kind of uh, set apart to take some time in. And uh, for the sake of time this morning, I just want to um, not read the entire 18 verses like I have the last two weeks, but just zero in on the two verses that we're going to look at this morning, and that's John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John writes, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Heavenly Father, I come to you and ask that you would make me an aroma of the gospel, a fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, the one an aroma from death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. Lord, who is adequate for these things? But Lord, I trust you that you will use me as a mouthpiece to communicate your truth to these people so they could know what you want them to know so they can be who you want them to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with the words that C.S. Lewis used to end a sermon that he preached back in 1941 at a college in Oxford, England. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he was an intellectual, and so you got to listen carefully to what he wrote. But there's a profound truth in what he had to say. He said, quote, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations, It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, with the understanding that there are no ordinary people. And then he closed with this. He said, you have never talked to a mere mortal. It is mortals, excuse me, it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Simply put, every one of us will live forever somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. And every time we interact with another person on this planet, we need to keep in mind the sobering reality that we are talking to an immortal soul who will live forever either in heaven or hell. That includes your parents and your children and your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates 
and, and the families that you interact with at your kids' ball games and music recitals and that receptionist at your doctor's office and the person that checks you out at, at, uh, at uh, Walmart and the, the, the mechanic who fixes your car, the, the waiter or waitress is going to be waiting on you in just a, a few minutes at lunch, the clients that you call on this week, your cleaning lady, and the person who's sitting right next to you. You're sitting next to an immortal soul. In fact, you are an immortal soul. And every one of us and everyone we come into contact with will one day exist, in the words of C.S. Lewis, either as an everlasting splendor or an immortal horror. And depending, depending on what we say and, and do or what we don't say and do, we are helping people to one or other of those destinations or outcomes. And the question is, are we helping people get to heaven or to hell? We have what people need to get to heaven, don't we? His name is Jesus. And what people do with Jesus is what ultimately determines whether they spend eternity in heaven or hell. If we receive him, we will be everlasting splendors. If we reject him, we will be immortal horrors. And last week we ended here in John chapter 1, verse 11, really on a depressing note as we considered how the majority of people in the world have failed to recognize who Jesus is when he came to this earth. And he was even rejected by his own people, the Jews, who should have known better. And yet John also wanted us to know that despite the fact that that most people hadn't recognized Jesus and had rejected Jesus, that there were some who did receive Jesus. Notice the transition here, starting in verse 11. He came to his own, the word, the light, Jesus. Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Many um, who have studied this book before me have pointed out that the words, his own did not receive him, could be the title for the first 12 chapters. Because you see there the opposition and the rejection of Christ in the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John. And then chapters 13 to the end, verse chapter 21, could be but to all who received him. Because he zeroes in on his disciples in that upper room discourse and, and at the cross and at the resurrection and the commissioning of Peter and, and uh, the other disciples. And so we said uh, in the last couple of weeks that we see in this prologue uh, really a sneak preview of some of the main themes that John planned to develop throughout the gospel. And so he's just kind of highlighting some of these themes. And one of those themes that we're going to be seeing is the increasing opposition and final rejection of Jesus that he faced during his public ministry. And in contrast, we're going to also see the increasing confidence and allegiance of those who receive Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And these two dynamics really unfold simultaneously in John. As Jesus went around preaching and and healing and performing miracles, some rejected him and some received him. And there's no middle ground with Jesus. Let's be clear. You either receive him or you reject him. You either love him or you hate him. And so we're going to zero in on really one of the eight truths that we broke this, uh, 
this first section of John down into, if you grabbed an outline coming in in the back or you saved the one from the previous weeks, you know we kind of divided these 18 verses into eight truths about Jesus that we'll see again and again in John's gospel, kind of a Jesus 101 kind of a opening session here. But we're going to zero in on the sixth truth this morning, and that is regeneration, how Christ granted salvation to many. And uh, we, we, hear, we, we find here in, in, in chat, uh, verses 12 through 13, one of the most important passages in the gospel and the whole Bible for that matter. One commentator said it this way, John gives one of those marvelous gospel texts where he distills into pure concentrate the essence of God's plan of salvation for humankind. They are natural stopping places. So that's why we're going to kind of stop and put the emergency brake on, if you will, and camp out here for this morning and just look at these two verses. We know their context in uh, verses 4 through 8. Uh, we learned last week how John portrayed Jesus as the light who came into the world to rescue us from darkness uh, and sin. In verses 10 and 11, John recorded how the world rejected the light. And here in verses 12 and 13, John explains how despite all the people who rebel against God and reject Jesus, there are those whom God sovereignly chose before the foundation of the world to receive Jesus and become his adopted children. You probably said, where'd you get that? Well, it's in there, trust me. And we're going to see that unfold this morning. And so last week, we saw how the light was revealed and how the light was rejected. And this morning, we're going to see how the light was received. And it begins with this very simple word, but. Verse 12, but. One of the most glorious buts in Scripture right there. Uh, One commentator said this way, Oh, those revealing buts of the Bible, they are small hinges on which great truths and destinies swing. And there's something huge going on here when he says, but, and that is this, that when his own people, the Jews, in verse 11, rejected him, Jesus offered himself to all mankind, to the Gentiles. And as those Gentiles who received Jesus, uh, or those, those Gentiles who received Jesus, God adopts them as his children, just like he adopted the nation of Israel to be his children back in the Old Testament. Notice it says, but as many as received him. That word receive means to take hold of, to obtain, to to grasp, to embrace. So so those who embraced Christ, you say, well, can you explain that a little bit further? What does that mean to grasp, to embrace, to take hold of Christ? Well, John helps us out by explaining further what that means In the last phrase of this verse, notice he says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so this last phrase restates the first phrase in different words. So to receive Jesus means to believe in Jesus, right? And and, and by the way, this is the first mention of the word believe in John's gospel, which is the key word along with our other word what? live or life, right? We know, based on what John said in in John chapter 20, where he clearly stated his purpose for writing this gospel. He said, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And and you heard me say this last week, kind of at the end, and it really just struck me 
It wasn't anything I had put in my notes, and, and, and it just struck me as I was wrapping up last week's sermon, the, 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 the um, profound thought that, this, that the Spirit-inspired purpose of this gospel is to cause people to believe that Jesus is God's Son, and in doing so, they will be delivered out of sin's darkness, they'll be rescued from death and hell, they'll be granted forgiveness, they'll be adopted as God's children, they'll be blessed with abundant life here on earth, and they'll be promised eternal life in heaven someday. That's the, that's the specific purpose, the Spirit-inspired purpose of this gospel. We know that the Bible says in Isaiah 55 that God's word never returns void or empty. It will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God sent forth this gospel through the pen of John and preserved it in his canon for the specific purpose of saving people from their sin through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so whenever the gospel of John is read or heard or preached, it will never not accomplish that purpose. It will always exceed in saving people. And that just got me excited. It got me pumped to see who's going to get saved through this series because this is the purpose of this book and God's word always fulfills its purpose. And by the way, I don't think it will just be unchurched people who might visit us on a Sunday from time to time who will get saved through this series on John. I think it might be overchurched people. So you got unchurched people and you got overchurched people. It's a little phrase I picked up from a book I've been reading by Matt Chandler called The Explicit Gospel, and he talks about overchurch people, that that's a lot of the problem, especially here in the South. You, got, you don't have a lot of unchurched people, you've got a lot of overchurch people. People can go in church all their life, right? They, 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 they can never remember a day they weren't going to church. That's me. I, I, I grew up in the church. And some of you have been coming to this church for years, and, 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 and you were born, or since you were born, you, you, you've, you've been coming to the church, and guess what? You're not truly saved. You're like, what are you talking about? I believe in Jesus. Well, so do the demons. And they shudder, send a shiver up their spine, because they know Jesus. They were with Jesus in heaven before they got kicked out. And they know that someday he will be the one who judges them in hell. That's what James 2.19 talks about, that the demons believe, and they shudder. So demons have faith is the point. And you say, well, what do demons believe? Well, let me just tell you quickly what they believe, and we just have to look at a couple interactions that Jesus had with some demons to find out what they believe. In Luke chapter 8, verse 28, this is the account of Jesus with the Gerasene demoniac, this guy that was just a crazy man and, and nobody could control him and everybody was afraid of him and he would hurt himself, he would hurt other people. And so Jesus shows up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and in Luke chapter 8, verse 28, it says, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and he would break his bonds and, driven, and would be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered, and they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. 
And so here's a group of demons that believe that Jesus was the son of the most high God. The very thing that John was wanting people to believe through his gospel. The demons didn't need to read the gospel of John. (laughs) They already knew it. They already believed it. And they also believed in hell. And they didn't want to go there. Acts chapter 16, another interesting interaction that Paul had with uh, a girl, a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, which I believe was, she was demon-possessed, and we can tell that by how he responds to her. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, it happened that we were going to the place of prayer. A slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. So this demon-possessed girl knew that the message that Paul and Luke and the other disciples were proclaiming was true. This is the way of salvation. This is how you get to heaven. This is how you have your sins forgiven. They knew that. And so she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. Just from those two accounts, we, we can conclude that there isn't a demon alive who's an atheist. They know too much to accept that foolish notion. Demons are orthodox in their belief system. They believe in God. They believe that the Bible is the word of God. They believe that Jesus is the son of God. They believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin and rose again and ascended into heaven. They understand the gospel message. They believe there's a heaven or hell. And yet that still doesn't make them a Christian and they are still going to hell. And so what that means is it's possible to believe all the right things and still end up in hell. And I think one of the greatest problems, if not the greatest problem in the church today, is what's been labeled easy believism. Are you familiar with that phrase? Easy believism. And and basically what that term means is that there are those well-meaning Christians, I think, who want so badly for others to become Christians, they try to make it as easy as possible to be saved. And so they reduce the gospel message to, I think, very unhelpful phrases like, all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart or accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And these gospel cliches really have become the norm in a lot of churches today. And I think while these phrases may not be wrong in in and of themselves and they do communicate some truth of Scripture, the Bible never explicitly tells us to seek salvation in those ways. Nor does the Bible invite us to pray a prayer or to sign a card or to walk an aisle or to raise your hand and so you can know for sure you're saved. And I think the result of, of this kind of shallow, systematized, evangelistic uh, approach is, is you've got a whole lot of people out, out there who think they're saved and they're really not. And by the way, that's not just my opinion. Um, I don't know what you make of surveys. I don't make much of surveys, but I do think they're interesting. And there was a very sad survey taken last year that showed that nearly half of all adults in America have prayed some kind of sinner's prayer. 
You know the prayer, Lord, I, I know that I'm a sinner and I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and I accept you into my heart now. Be my Savior and Lord. Amen, right? I mean, if there was a Guinness Book of World Records for how many times you've said the Lord's Prayer or the sinner's prayer, I should say, that's I'm in, okay? I'm, I'm the winner, okay? I've said that prayer so many times in my life, just, just to be sure, just in case, right? Um, but the point is, the survey said, they were asked, people were asked, half of all adults admitted to having prayed some kind of sinner's prayer, and subsequently, they believe that they're going to heaven. And yet, by their own admission, they rarely attend church, they rarely read the Bible, And they have lifestyles that really are no different from those outside the church. And they're willing to admit that. And so in light of the fact that so many in our country seem assured of a salvation that they give no evidence of having, we need to be careful to explain the gospel clearly and completely. And I think one of the most critical elements of the gospel is what it truly means to believe to believe in Jesus Christ. Because the, the New Testament is so clear that we must believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved and have the assurance that we are saved. You remember the Philippian jailer came to Paul and Silas after the earthquake and he said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10:9, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 John 5:13. These things I have written to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So we know that truth. And yet nowhere is this truth stated clearer than in John. And John developed this concept of belief throughout his gospel. In fact, it's the one word he repeated most. So I think it's safe to say he's the expert on what it means to believe. And so because this is the first instance of the word believe, I thought it would be right appropriate just to take a minute and see how he uses the word believe in just the first couple of chapters, okay? We're not going to go through the whole book because that would take more time than we have. But just look, look at the next time he mentions believe in John chapter 1 uh, towards the end, verse 47. And this is where he meets Nathaniel and calls him to be one of his disciples. And in John 1, 47, it said, uh, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael's like, do, 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 do. How did you see me? I didn't see you. Well, what happened? Instantaneously, I believe God granted Nathanael belief or faith. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel because you just did something that no mere man could do. And then verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Are you kidding me? That's all it took for you to believe? He says, you will see greater things than these. So he commends him for his simple faith, his simple belief. Well, that sounds easy enough, right? Well, Go to chapter 2, verse 23. And we begin to see that not all belief is the kind of belief that Jesus is desiring 
or requires. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Sounds good, right? They were watching him do all this stuff, and they're believing in his name. Wow, this is great. Jesus must have been really excited about that. People were responding to him. But, verse 24, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus wasn't buying it. He wasn't buying their belief. He knew that, that, it, that it wasn't real. It was a temporary fad and not something that would endure the test of time and trial because as soon as he revealed himself as the one who was going to die and he wasn't going to keep feeding them fish and bread and, and, and sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, they, they didn't want anything to do with this guy. And so they were saying, hey, I believe in you, Jesus. And Jesus said, well, I don't believe in you. You believe in me, I don't believe in you. See, the question is not, do you believe in Jesus, but does Jesus believe in you? And of course, you got John 3, 16, right? We are all familiar with that most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what? Believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Listen, whatever that belief is, it's huge because it, 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 it keeps you from going to hell and it gives you eternal life, right? It's the thing that determines where you spend eternity. So we got to understand what it means to believe, right? This is critical. And you're like, well, it just says believe. It can, does he help us out any further? Well, yeah, look at the end of chapter 3 in the same context of what does it mean to believe in him so you won't perish but have everlasting life. He says in verse 36, John gives a little commentary on what it means to believe. He says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. We're good with that. But now check this out. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, you would expect him to say, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But that's not what he says. He uses another word for believe. And he basically interchanges the word for believe with the word obey. In other words, they're, they're, they're interchangeable terms. They're synonymous terms. They mean the same thing. So to receive Jesus means to believe in Jesus, and to believe in Jesus means to obey Jesus. You starting to see the flow here? And so to believe in Jesus here means more than simply accepting the facts about who he is and what he did. I mean, granted, we, we must acknowledge the facts about Jesus, right? That Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth and died and rose again from the dead. He ascended back to heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God to show that he had, he had finished forever the work of salvation for us through his sinless life and his sin-bearing death. We need to believe that. We need to acknowledge that and accept that and affirm that. But notice back in John 1, 12, he says, but as many as received him, even to those who believe in his name. Okay, now we're getting a little thing more specific. What are we to believe in? We're to believe in his name, which, by the way, the word name or that, that word name just stands for what a person represents, okay, and what he demands. And so true saving faith embraces the totality of Christ's being, Everything he is and everything he's done, from his deity to his humanity, from his saviorship to his lordship, it's a package deal. And of course, we know there's no other name like Jesus, right? 
And the angel told Joseph in Matthew 121, talking about Mary would bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's a lot of people you can trust in on this planet, but I'll tell you what, Oprah's not getting you to heaven. Okay, Jesus will get you to heaven. Believing in Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will what? Bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so hopefully by now you're beginning to see that believing in Jesus is more than just mentally agreeing with what the Bible says about him. It's obeying him. It's it's bowing to him. And that's really the difference between demonic faith, what will send you straight to hell, and true saving faith. It's it's, it's the difference between recognition and submission. And so the demons, they recognize all that stuff. They'll tell you, yeah, I believe all that stuff. You go out here today and we take a survey of, of, of most people in the South, okay, and say, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? What are they gonna say? Yeah, I believe all that stuff. So are we to assume that that means that they're going to heaven, that they're saved? Well, I don't think so, because that's merely recognition. I want to know if they've submitted their life to those facts that they say they believe. John MacArthur has written a lot about this subject, and he made this statement in, I think, his commentary on James. He said, quote, the church today desperately needs to recognize and deal with the soul-damning idea that mere acknowledgement of the gospel facts as being true is sufficient for salvation. We must clearly and forcefully counter the deception and delusion that knowing and accepting the truth about Jesus Christ is equivalent to having saving faith in him. And I know I'm talking to probably everyone in here who who knows these things and even accepts these things. But that is not necessarily equivalent to you having true saving faith. When the Bible says believe, it isn't merely referring to a passive intellectual acceptance of some truths or some facts about Jesus. It's talking about an active allegiance to Christ that involves utterly forsaking any attempt, any effort to save yourself by your own good works and solely trusting in his work on the cross as the only way that you can be saved. And at the same time, it's a, it's a completely submitting and committing of our entire lives to follow and obey Jesus as our Lord and Master to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. The reformers, way back when, in the 1500s, 1600s, they were wrestling with this whole issue of what does it mean to believe? What does is, what is true saving faith look like? And so they divided faith into three levels. And I think this is very helpful. They said, first of all, there's the level of knowledge where, where you know something to be true. And then secondly, there's the level of assent or agreement where you actually believe that. You say, yeah, I know that's true and I actually believe it. 
okay? And then there's a third level, and it's what they call trust or commitment. And that's when you actually do something about what you know and what you say you believe. You actually do something. And so a true saving faith in the reformers, from the reformers' perspective involved the mind and the heart and the will. There was an intellectual aspect of faith, there was an emotional aspect of faith, and there was a volitional aspect of faith. In other words, if your faith never got to the third level, you're not a genuine believer. And so you may be here this morning, someone who has always believed in Jesus, but you've never truly believed in Jesus. You've never placed your trust alone in what he's done to save you. And you can know that because you're still trusting in other things to make you right with God. Like being here in church this morning, you're thinking, okay, God, you you see me down here? Check that off, I'm here. Or maybe... Oh, there's a baptism coming up. I, I need to get baptized because I know if I, if I don't get baptized, well, maybe that will be a, a, a black mark on my record, right? And so I got to get baptized in order to be saved. Or I got to give to money. I got to be a good person in order to earn my way to heaven. Listen, you've never been truly born again if that's what you're thinking. And that's how you're living. You've never truly trusted Christ. And maybe you've never committed your life to Christ to follow and obey Christ. And you can know that. Because you, you've not been born again. Because if you were born again, you would be a new creature in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. In other words, there will be a change that will be evident in your life. It may not be a drastic change, especially if you're younger and you, know, you weren't you know, killing people and burying them in your sandbox when you were four years old, right? There might not be this dramatic change, um, but there's a change nevertheless. And you know you've not truly believed in Christ if no one could recognize you as a Christian. That your life doesn't reflect that you're a child of God. Because those who truly believe in Jesus, they bear a family resemblance. They have to. That's just the way it is. Why? Because they're God's kids. And all of our kids, right, bear a resemblance to us, their parents. And so notice what he says, but as many as received him, even to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That word gave there, I think, is a great reminder to us of the grace of God involved in the gift of salvation, that this is not something that can be earned, but it's simply a gift that's received. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And so he gives this to us. He grants us the right to become children of God. The right there means the privilege, the authority to call yourself one of God's kids. I mean, that's an amazing right. That's an amazing privilege that we could be called the children of God. But notice this word. He says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, which implies that we used to not be children of God. Of God. And I think this is very important because I think a common misconception in our world is that we are all God's children. In fact, I think somebody told me that was said in the debates this last Wednesday night, the presidential debates. We're all God's children. And and granted, as as creator, 
God is the father of all mankind. We get that, right? Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and exist. We are his offspring. But as Savior, God is the father of only those who he has chosen to adopt as his own through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just read for you uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, just as God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, don't miss this, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And that has to be, it has to be his will, um, and it has to be through election and predestination because according to the same context, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, we were by nature children of God, children of wrath, even as the rest. And so there's a lot of people who wrongly assume that when they, they were born, they automatically became a child of God. That's just part of living life on this earth, right? We're all God's children. Well, the Pharisees thought pretty much the same thing. They thought because they'd been born into the family of Abraham that they were naturally God's children. That that made them God's children. But Jesus confronted this misconception and really this presumption. And in fact, it's in the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, verse 42. Check this out. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to the Pharisees, If God were your father, you would love me. But it's obvious you're not, right? God's not your father because you don't love me, his son. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, who? The devil. Wow. John expands on this idea of being a child of God or a child of the devil in 1 John chapter 3. Listen to what he said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. By the way, same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, right, wrote 1 John. He says this, little children, make sure no one deceives you, that no one practices, the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because he, his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. And then here's verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So he sets us, all of us, in two categories. You're either a, a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And how do you know? He says, well, look at your lifestyle. Look at the, the practice in your life. What are the things that you are doing over and over again? Are they righteous things or are they unrighteous things? What is the habitual pattern of your life, in other words? That, that, that will show you, that will reveal to you if you're a child of God or a child of the devil. And so which are you? Are you a child of God or are you a child of the devil? We all start as a child of the devil, by the way. 
And it's not until we are born again that we become a child of God. See, just being born isn't enough to make you a child of God. You, you need to be born spiritually. And John's going to get into this in John chapter 3. Of course, the, one, of the, one of the most familiar passages in all the gospel where he meets with Nicodemus at night, right? The Pharisee who came to him. And, uh, and Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We'll talk more about that when we get there. But the point for this morning is if you've not been born again, the Bible says you're still a child of Satan and you will go to hell. But the good news here, this is the good news, but if you receive him, if you believe in him, in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will become a child of God who will spend eternity in heaven with your, with your father, with your daddy. Now notice how John follows up what he says in verse 12. He, didn't, he wanted to make sure that we understood that becoming a child of God is not something that we can do on our own, but it's something that only he can do, only something that God can do. And so verse 12 emphasizes man's responsibility in salvation, what we must do in order to become a child of God. We must receive him and, and, and believe in him. And verse 13 really emphasizes God's sovereignty in salvation, what God has done so that we could receive and believe in Christ, how he's adopted us as his children. And sometimes the Bible looks at salvation from a human perspective, and sometimes it looks at salvation from a divine perspective. And so in this case, we need to take a step back and look at salvation from God's perspective. From our perspective, we, we receive Christ. We placed our faith in Christ. We made a decision. We prayed a prayer. We, we went forward at a camp. We whatever, right? From on a human level, we know how we got saved. But how did we get saved? How did we become, become God's child from a heavenly perspective? Well, he's going to tell us. Notice he says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so John tells us three ways that we don't become a child of God. First of all, we don't become a child of God by descent. He says, who were born not of blood. In other words, salvation is not passed down from a parent to a child through the bloodstream. It's not a DNA thing, okay? Just because your parents are a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. And it makes me cringe when I hear people say in response to the question, hey, tell me, um, are you a Christian? And they'll say, well, I was born a Christian. Beloved, that is a lie from the pit of hell. There is no one on this planet that has ever been born a Christian. Being born in, in a Christian home, being raised in a Christian home doesn't make anyone a Christian. You must be born again. So it's not based on your descent. It's not based on your decision. Notice he says, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh. Salvation doesn't ultimately result from some decision you make, some prayer you pray, some card you sign, right? Something that you do. None of us have the power in and of ourselves to become a child of God. No one 
chooses Christ unless Christ first chooses us. And John makes this so clear in his gospel, and he, he, he makes these little statements from time to time that are like, whoa, did, what, what did he just He just said what? For example, John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Same chapter, chapter 6, verse 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Jesus is like, listen, nobody's coming to me unless God has already granted you, you, you adoption and, 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 and salvation. And then my favorite, just how could you miss this, okay? John 15, 16, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And so it's not based on our descent, it's not based on our decision, nor is it based on our desire, okay, our desire. He says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Salvation is not based on your desire or your will. Your will is not free to choose Christ. And there's a lot of people that talk about how free will. Well, what about free will? Well, the Bible says that the human will is in bondage to sin. Just read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where it says, We are dead in our trespasses and sins. What can a dead person do? Nothing. We are at the complete mercy of the grace of God. It's impossible for us to become a child of God on our own. We must be supernaturally regenerated first, at which time we're granted repentance and faith, and simultaneously we repent, we repent and believe in Christ and are instantly made a child of God. You say, whoa, whoa, time out. Can you break that up a little bit? No. That, that's what they call the order salutis, the order of salvation, and you, know, you start making your mind hurt and you start smelling smoke because you're trying to figure out, okay, what happens first and what comes first? Do I repent and believe and then God makes me a child of God or did, did, did he grant me repentance and then I repent and believe and you know what, I think the best way to understand it is, is, is just how I said it, that God regenerates you. you, got, before you, you a dead a corpse cannot repent and believe. He must be regenerated, brought back to life, and granted repentance and faith, and granted the will to choose Christ. And when we do that, it's a simultaneous, instantaneous, we're repenting and believing, right? And it appears to us from our vantage point that we're doing it all. But behind the scenes, we know from God's word, he's doing it all. And so John wanted to make it emphatically clear that salvation is the result of the unconditional, uninfluenced will of God, who graciously does what we could not do, and even if we could, we would never do. And he says, he, he makes this point at the end, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of who? What does it say? Of God. And here we have the great truth of God's sovereign grace in electing and adopting those who would be saved. And I think it's important to note that, that John introduced this truth at the very beginning of his gospel because it is foundational to the gospel message. And by the way, he's not the only author of scripture who taught that every believer owes their new birth to God's sovereign grace. Listen to what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God caused us to be born again. 
And then James chapter 1, verse 18, it says, In the exercise of his will, God's will, he brought us forth. And the, the idea of bringing forth is, is, is giving birth. So it was in the exercise of his will, not our will, his will, that brought us forth. So it was God's will, God's choice, God's decision. In other words, it's, it, it, ultimately, it's not up to us whether or not we become a child of God. It's up to God. You say, well, where, where, does, where does my will fit into this process of salvation? Well, how did your will fit in with you being physically born? Did you have a say in that? I mean, a baby has nothing to do with being born. I mean, none of us made a decision to be born. It was the decision of our parents. No one who's ever been born into this world, it's never been by his own will or his own choice. And neither has any Christian ever been born again by his own will or his own choice. Now, lest you walk away this morning and say, well, I guess I just got to kick back and wait. There's nothing I can do until God zaps me, right, with repentance and faith and regenerates me. So I just got to hang out and wait for this divine miracle to happen in my life. Well, I don't think that's true. I think there are a couple of things that, that you can do that I believe God will use to save you. Like, first of all, read and listen to his word. If you're not a Christian yet, if you're not, true, if you're not truly saved, you are in the best possible place you could be right here. Sitting under the teaching of God's word. Because the scripture says, James said it, he said, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He regenerated us through the scriptures. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the word of Christ, hearing the word of God. You want to believe? You want to truly believe? You need to hear the word of God. You need to be sitting under the word of God. You need to, need to be reading the word of God. And if there's anything he's going to use to save you, grant you true saving faith, it's this thing right here. So read it. Listen to it. Put yourself under it. Expose yourself to it. And then I think also you, you can pray. And be honest. Just say, God, if, if there is a God, right? If you're, at, if you're at that place, you're not sure. God, if there is a God, I want you to reveal yourself to me. And if you convince me that Jesus is really your son, who died for my sin, then I promise I'm going to submit to him and I'm going to follow him and obey him the rest of my life. You pray that prayer with a genuine and sincere heart, watch out. Because I think God will answer that prayer. And oh, by the way, just because God is sovereign in salvation doesn't rule out all the verses in the Bible about man's responsibility. And you need to repent and believe. Bottom line, you need to repent and believe. And if you do, you'll know that God granted you repentance and faith. And so go home and cry out to God, say, God, would you please grant me repentance and faith so I can repent and believe? Well, as long as John lived, he never got over the doctrine of election and adoption 
and regeneration. And just listen to what he said when he wrote his first epistle in 1 John 3. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. He's like, whoa, this is so cool. I can't believe it. I can't get over this. It was astonishing to him. And I think it was assuring to him because he went on to say, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Hey, I get it. The world doesn't get us, and that's okay. They didn't get Jesus. And so this was reassuring to him, but it was also very compelling to him. He said, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, this great love of the Father to make us children, his children, was so captivating and so compelling that he just wanted to be more like Jesus. He wanted to love Jesus as he had been loved, right, by God. James Montgomery Boyce has written a great commentary, really five volumes, (laughs) on the Gospel of John. And just listen to what he said. And he said, quote, the Christian who has come to see these things, the things we were talking about this morning, will look up from the dung heap of this world, still covered with much of the world's refuse, and say, oh my God, how could you love me? And when he gets to that point, the love of Christ will begin to constrain him. And he will begin to learn that God has set things up this way so that it will be with bonds of love and not the whip of the law that we are drawn to holiness the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what's motivating you to be holy, to be pure? It's not that you're scared of the whip, right, of the law driving you. You're driven by love. How could I not pursue such a great love? Someone who has loved me so much. I'm praying that I get that because it's a glorious place to be in your walk with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, just this small passage that has so much for us today. And I pray that you would be gracious to those who are maybe, who believed in Jesus. They can never not believe, remember believing in Jesus, but it's never been true believer. They're not truly saved because it's just all up in their head and it's really not in their heart. It's not coming out in their life. And so I just pray that you would grant them genuine repentance and genuine faith. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, who you've been so gracious to call us out of darkness into light and make us your children, that we would be like John, who we just can't get over the astonishing, amazing reality that we are your children and that we would want to live to reflect you as best we can out of love for Christ, not out of fear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.